fourth chapter of the book of Luke. I'm reading verses 1 through 14. The temptation of Jesus is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. And the only difference between Matthew's account and Luke's account is in chronology. Matthew has the temptation that Luke has as the second temptation. Matthew has it as the third and vice versa. So I'm going to read Luke's account and I want to use Matthew's chronology. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the wilderness, by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And he led him to, the, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall not put the, put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. When God made us, created us, He gave us all certain capacities and abilities, faculties and resources, and with those capacities and resources and and abilities, He gave us the power to choose how we'll use those capacities, how we'll meet those needs. And God sees to it that we all come through conflict, conflict in life, to see whether we will use these capacities and abilities to gratify self or to glorify Him. The Bible calls that temptation. Now a good definition of temptation is an inducement to use a God-given ability in a God-forbidden way. An enticement to meet a God-given need in a God-forbidden way. Originally, the word temptation meant to measure, 
And that's what was happening out in the wilderness. Jesus was being measured to see if there was a character flaw in him or some weak spot. And what was being determined out in the wilderness was this. Is Jesus going to use what he has to gratify self or to glorify God? Now the temptations of Jesus are important for two reasons. One is because they give us a clear picture of what the devil is like. Now we have all felt this influence in the universe that, that are some force that draws us, sometimes draws us to do things we know we shouldn't do. But we don't really understand what that is or what it's like. And so Jesus drags Satan out into the light and exposes him and we see what he is and what he's like and his method of operation. And nowhere other than the third chapter of Genesis is there a clearer picture of what, Jesus, what Satan is and how he operates than in the temptation of Jesus. So that it is important because it helps us to see what Satan is. Secondly, the temptation of Jesus is important because it gives us a preview of our own temptation. For how Jesus was tempted is how everybody's tempted. The scripture says that he was tempted in every way as we. So that if we know how Jesus was tempted, then you know how every time you will be tempted. Now I need to say five things about temptation. I hope you'll get this down. There are these just general statements prefacing what I want to say in the sermon by these five things. Number one, is that temptation is a part of the divine plan of God for every life. Luke says that Jesus was led out into the wilderness. Mark has it that he was, that he was driven out into the wilderness. And the Greek word there is to throw or to thrust like a Ryan, Nolan Ryan fastball. He was hurled out into the wilderness. So that the temptation of Jesus and every temptation that you experience or endure is a part of the divine plan of God for your life. He will see to it that you pass through periods of measurement. Now I think sometimes we think of temptation like some big bad dog lying in the neighbor's yard asleep, you know. I guess most of you have already heard, it's kind of got all over town right away, my little rendezvous with a pit bulldog the other morning. Well, all of my life flashed before me as I was, if I had been timed in the 40 yard dash by some pro scout I'll be making a million dollars today. I signed up for a pro contract. Some little kid who heard about it at school saw me a couple of days later and said, boy, I bet you ran fast. I said, boy, that's not the half of it. I mean, now, I still jog early in the morning and I still go down the same street. I made up my mind, well, let some pit bull discourage me. But it is different now. And when I go down past where that pit bull is lying in the, in the, in the yard at that, that neighbor's house, I'm as I'm far away as I can get on the other side of the street and I'm tiptoeing, you know, kind of as I jog, hoping I'll not breathe. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard not to breathe after you've run about a mile but already. And, I'm, you know, it, it, some of us deal with temptation like that. It, we think if we can just kind of tiptoe around temptation that we'll be all right. No, God will see to it 
that you pass through the periods of temptation because a faith that is not tested is of no value to anybody. All right? So it, it's a part of the divine plan of God for your life. Second, temptation often comes after some great spiritual victory. Now all three gospel writers make a mention of the fact of when this temptation occurred. For when it occurred is almost as important as that it occurred. And Mark says that immediately he was tempted. Immediately after what? Immediately after his baptism. Now the whole centuries of the, of the world had been waiting for Messiah on its tiptoes. And now he's come. And Jesus understood from the time he was 12 years old that he was Messiah, that he was about his father's business. But for 18 years after that, he was in preparation for this one great event that he chose for himself. And he was in the Word, the scrolls, and he was in the presence and communion with the Father. And now the time has come, and he bursts upon the scene. What a day! And he's baptized fulfilling all righteousness. And the heavens are opened, and a dove descends, and a voice says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's a high moment in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. And immediately he was thrust into temptation. Now if you've just experienced some great spiritual victory, don't think that immunes you from temptation. You better watch out. Temptation's on its way. I'm thinking this morning of Elijah. And for three and a half years after he prayed, heaven was stopped up and no rain. And now it's time to gather all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. High noon, the showdown at Mount Carmel. And they're going to see whose God is really God. If God is God, follow Him. If He's Baal, follow Him. And He stakes His life on God. And after the prophets of Baal call on their gods, 450 of them, no God answered. And so they cut off their heads. And Elijah steps up and he asks that the altar be soaked in water and he digs a trench and fills it with water because if my God can't burn water, he's no God at all. And he calls on God in a moment of truth and fire falls and the greatest moment in history occurs. God proves himself. And immediately after that, Elijah's on the run. Elijah's been threatened by Jezebel and he's running for his life. He comes to the backside of the desert and prays that God will kill him. And the point is that after every spiritual victory, temptation occurs. Assault. Temptation's assault occurs. That just means that the devil's paying you a good compliment. Yeah, you have something he wants. You're a threat to him. All right, third. The third general thing that I need to say about temptation is, is that temptation often comes to us, most of that time comes to us at our strongest point. You say, well, preacher, didn't you mean to say that he comes at the weakest point? No, the strongest point. Now, I read somewhere that a person can go 38 to 40 days without food, but at the end of 40 days he begins to starve. Now most of us, I, I in particular, I can speak only for myself, after about 40 minutes I begin to you know, starve. But, uh, now that's really not starving, it's just hunger pains. You know, your stomach begins to shrink after a day or two, you've been on a fast or a diet. 
But I've read that it, it takes about 38 to 40 days and, you, and, you, and your body uses up all this stored food that is in the cell, but after 40 days, you literally start to starve. It's interesting to me that the Scripture says that at, at the end of this period of time, Jesus began to be hungry. You don't think He was hungry during those 40 days? Of course He was. What it means is He began to starve to death. And in that day, in that world, these little stones look like little loaves of bread. And so Satan comes to him and he says, look at that stone that it reminds you of bread. Say to it, turn to bread and it will. Now that wouldn't have been a temptation to me at all. It wouldn't have tempted you. Because you know and I know, I know that I couldn't have turned those stones to bread if I'd have wanted to. But it was a temptation to Jesus because it would have been easy for him. And so Satan comes to him at the point of his strength and tempts him to make him weak. Now watch this. How many times have you heard people say, there is one thing I would never do. You'll never find me doing that. I would never be guilty of that. And that's the one thing they do. Because it is at the point where we feel the strongest that Satan comes with his assault. All right? Fourth. We're never finished with temptation. Now the scripture says that Satan went away for a more opportune time. If you have a King James Bible, it says that he went away for a more convenient season. He just went away to regroup and rearrange and come again. Because once you have passed through temptation, it comes again. Are you, are you hearing me? You, you know this is true. It comes again and again and again, usually at the same place. And finally, temptation prepares us for service. I love it where it says that Jesus went out in, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But the last verse says, He came back in the power of the Spirit. Now He went out led by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But having overcome temptation, He came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that when a person endures temptation and triumphs, it prepares him in a unique way with power. And he came back in the power. It prepares us for service. Now that's the introduction. Now the introduction's long, but the sermon is short. <laughs> and this is the runway. Now we'll fix and take off. Now, there are three ways, three angles from which temptation comes. For Satan only has three shots in his gun. He only has three knocks on the door. And when he has exhausted these three bullets, these three shots, has knocked this three times, he has exhausted every means of temptation. These three. Number one, physical appetite. Physical desire. Physical drive. Physical need. Now there are th Thousands of variations of these hungers, but there are just three basic hungers. I want to show them to you. I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Everybody can turn to that. It's easy to find. First book in the Bible. And so I want you to turn to chapter 3 because in this passage I want to read, we find the three basic physical desires, three basic hungers. Look at them. Genesis 3. Now, the, servant was more, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now, parenthetically, you need to understand that we are to live from the middle and not in the middle of life. God is the sole center and authority of life. He is the center. He said, now we can eat of all the trees, but the one in the middle, say, can't eat, can't touch. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here it is, watch. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. First John has it like this, that which is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here are the three hungers. Does it feel good? Does it look good? Will it make you smart? If it feels good, if it makes you look good, if it makes you intelligent, three basic hungers. Now here it is. Satan comes to us and he says, now look, God has given you a, a capacity, a, a faculty. He's given you a drive and he's given you the resources to meet those needs. What's wrong with satisfying it? What's wrong with satisfying? You've got a basic physical desire, a physical drive. What's wrong with satisfying that? Where do you think that came from? God gave you that. What's wrong with satisfying it? Um, and so the church at Corinth debated that issue. Now Corinth was the most wicked city in the world. And in the midst of this wicked city, with its terrible, terrible environment and culture, the church had been planted like a tulip in a compost pile. And in the midst of this terrible Roman Greek environment of, of, of sexual licentiousness and promiscuity, the church debated over this issue. If it's, if it's a desire and it's a God-given desire, what's wrong with satisfying it? In, in chapter 6 when he said, the, the stomach is for food and food is for the stomach, but God do away with both of them. For the body belongs to the Lord. Let me tell you what he's saying there. He's saying, what is going to determine how you live your life? Your stomach or the will of God? This is what he's saying. He's saying, what is going to dictate how you live your life? Your physical desires? Are you going to use those energies and those capacities and those abilities you have to gratify yourself? Or are you going to subordinate those to the word and will of God? That's a heavy question. And it's just as relevant now as it was then. And this is the question in plain, simple words. Which is more important to you? Your physical needs being met, your physical desires are the word and the will of God. You've got to answer that question sometime. So he comes at the point of physical appetite. Secondly, 
He comes at the point of spiritual allegiance, our faith, to, our, our allegiance to God, our faith in Him. Now you'll miss this if you don't listen carefully. He quotes a, a, a passage from the Psalms and he says, you know God has told you that He's put His angels guarding you and you won't even stump your toe. He said, you might ought to test to see if God really meant that. And so he took him out to the pinnacle of the temple. I've seen the pinnacle of the temple. It's really the corner of the temple wall. He said, get up on top of that pinnacle and jump off and let's just see, let's just prove and see if God really meant what he said. Hey. You, you better test God because you're not going to be able really to take him at his word. It's interesting and exciting that while I was pre preparing this sermon, a young man came to my office this week and sat down and we talked. And he's in a theological, academic environment that's challenging his, his faith. In this theological, academic environment where he's now studying, everything that he's taught as a, was taught as a young boy in a Baptist church is being challenged. And he said, you know, brother, and he's scared. He said, you know, Brother Gerald, they're saying that if you can't, if you can't prove it, then, you, then it must not be true. And, and, if, you know, and he says, if everything that comes that's a question, he said, they say that if there's no proof to that, it's silly to believe it. Now watch this carefully. Here's the temptation. The temptation is this. The devil says that if there are any unanswered questions in your life, if God leaves any question unanswered, it must mean that God is not God. That's the very temptation he used on Eve. And what he was saying to Eve was, can you really believe and take God at his word? See, And he comes to Jesus and he says, now, he may, God may have said this, but you'd better pr have him prove it before you believe it. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you come in life to crisis and circumstances for which you have no answers, and it just challenged, it made your faith stagger? What kind of God is it that has to prove himself over and over and over again, jump through hoops and perform miracles before you'll believe him. And let me ask you this question. What kind of faith do you have if that faith is dependent upon proof? It's no faith at all. And so Satan comes and he does it to us every day. He comes to us and says, well, look, if, can you really take God at his word? And sometime, sooner or later, everybody has to come to a deep commitment just to take God at His Word. All right? Last knock. Last shot in the gun has to do with personal ambition. And so he takes Jesus up on top of this, and in a moment of time, he has all the kingdoms passed before him. I think that literally means he shows him the 20th century and all of its luxury, all of its wealth. He has all of the kingdoms passed before him in a moment of time. And Satan says, how would you like to have that? Now you need to remember, watch this, you need to remember that, that Jesus was born 
to a carpenter and he lived, his parents were peasants. He never had a thing except barest essentials. And at the time he was growing up as a boy, growing up, he grew up in a refugee camp down in Egypt. Can you imagine what a temptation that must have been to him? It was like that day you were riding down the street in your old clunker and you saw that guy pass you by in a luxury car and you were thinking to yourself, man, would I look good in that. It was like that day you were driving through the the, uh, uh, north, the, the rich section of North Dallas or over here at McKinney, you know, when you're over there looking, light, looking at lights, all those beautiful mansions, and you were saying to yourself, man, don't I deserve this. I would look great in there. And so Satan said, wouldn't you like to have all of this? Now watch this. And there was, Jesus was totally human, and there was in Him this desire. For that. Now watch carefully. Satan was not saying to Jesus, I want you to abandon your mission so you can have this. He wasn't saying that at all. He was saying, Jesus, you can have all of this if you'll just compromise this much. You can have it. I'm not asking you to abandon your mission. I'm asking you to compromise. You know how it's like, young people. You want to be popular? I can tell you how. You don't have to denounce your faith. You don't have to walk out of here and say, I'm never going back to church. I'm denouncing my faith. All you have to do to be popular is to compromise just a little. And he comes to the business person. He says, you want that sale? You want that promotion? You want that a bank account? I'm not asking you to denounce your faith. It's a good thing to have faith. But I am saying... If you, you'll have to compromise just a little. You'll have to take just a little curve in the road, just a little shortcut. It won't matter to much, but just compromise a little bit. That's what he's saying to Jesus. And that's what he's saying to us. At the point of personal ambition. Now hang on to this word, please. Jesus, in every temptation, overcame Now, he overcame because he was equipped with two things, just two, the fullness of the Spirit and the Word of God. Now, some people will tell you that the way you overcome temptation is you quote Scripture. Now, that's that's crazy. You can quote the Bible, and that won't get you over temptation. He He didn't just quote Scripture. He obeyed it. Now, watch carefully. It's suggestive to me that Jesus overcame temptation simply by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And He never once referred to His deity. You know why? Because He comes to you in this congregation this morning and He says to you, you don't have to be God to overcome temptation. For I marched out into the wilderness and I overcame temptation with the Word of God and the Spirit of God and you have everything I had. Hallelujah for that. 
Isn't that encouraging? What he says to us today is, you can overcome this temptation because you have everything I had. The Spirit and the Word. You don't have to fall prey. Now some of you may be saying, well, it's a little late for me. I've already yielded to temptation. What about me? It's like shutting the barn door after the horse is out. Well, I've got good news for you. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you can start all over with a clean sheet. Clean page. And if you come this morning to confess your sin, agree with God concerning it, and repent of it, and if you walk out of here, you can walk out into the wilderness and you can endure temptation. In fact, you can triumph over it because you possess everything Jesus possessed. He never once referred to His deity. And when He has shot His gun three times, He's exhausted His temptation. How many of you this morning struggling with the physical need, physical desire. How many of you this morning have know what I'm talking about when it comes to being tested at the point of trust, just resting and waiting on God? How many of you this morning know what I'm talking about when, it ta- when I talk about compromising personal amb- for personal ambition's sake? I'm talking to everybody in this room. Let's pray together. Father, In this moment of invitation and decision, I pray that what you desire for us is what we will do. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. Look, I'm going to ask you this morning to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ if you've never come to that point of time where you turned away from your faith and trust in anything or anybody or any system, any any creed, any farm. You come to the point of time where you can place your faith in Jesus only. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're lost. Until you come to that crucial moment of truth where you say, I'm trusting on Jesus Christ for my salvation. I place my faith in Him. Maybe you need to come this morning to place your life in the church. And as one did in the early service, to say that you were talking to me at this point. There are some things in my own life I've not yet given up to God. I want to do that. We might call it rededication of life, whatever we call it. It's It's the placing at God's disposal that which we want to keep for ourselves. And so we're going to sing two stanzas of this little this invitation. We may sing a couple from Just As I Am, but you want to come on the first verse, first word of the first verse. That's the easiest time. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come. <laughs>